Welcome to episode two of season two of the Building Builders podcast, a podcast made for contractors. Today's guest is Wendy Hawken, an oil and lubricant specialist currently working for Shell. Wendy also has an online brand as The Oil Lady and specializes in lubricants for heavy equipment and trucks. She is also the president of Crew Collaborative, a nonprofit organization strengthening the blue collar workforce. In this conversation between Wendy and Kevin, topics include lubricant advice for fleet managers to decrease downtime, best practices for fleet managers, how contractors and equipment rental companies approach lubrication differently, and trends in the lubrication world. Remember to follow and subscribe to whatever streaming service you use. Wendy, it's great to meet you. Likewise, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for being on uh, Building Builders podcast. Um, so, Wendy, we've been looking forward to this chat, and um, I'd love to uh, just kind of see if you can share with our, our listeners uh, what it is that you do. I think you have a, a blog, and you've been in the, the oil and lube uh, industry for quite a while. Can you, can you share a little bit? Yes. So, I started out you know, the whole journey out of college. I didn't go to college with a plan, so I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. Um, I moved on a whim from Michigan where I grew up to Chicagoland and uh, mm-hmm. uh, decided, was trying to feel out my career options at that point in time, was not considering anything within our industry. Uh, it wasn't even on my radar. And I was working at a, like a, a high-end health club in the city and a woman came in and she asked if I was interested in uh, doing a position at her company, which happened to be a local lubricants distributor. And I was, you know, no, no, you know, I, I'm, I think I'm going to do this. And she was so persistent that I decided to take the interview and I fell in love with it. Um, and they were offering me a salary right out of college, right? And that's that's uh, nice. exciting for any college graduate with debt. So I, I took it and um, it was a marketing role. I was admittedly terrible at it. And but I because I had no marketing experience, but I, I was seeing what the some of the reps were doing out in the field. So I asked if I could shadow a uh, very uh, highly accredited rep. And he took me into some of the steel mills in Northwest Indiana. And that was my first time actually experiencing it firsthand at the end user and just falling head over heels in love with it. And then deciding to apply to a competing distributor who was hiring a field sales rep. And then once I got hired on, I, uh, I just studied everything that I could. I took advantage of every training, um, every opportunity to learn and become the best in our, in our region here in the lubrication world. So that's kind of the, the really high level, quick overview of how I got into this. And so my first role, which kind of was the, the last 10 years or so, or so, I'm almost coming up on 10 years in the industry here, was just working as a sales rep, outside sales rep for local Chicago land, and they all happen to be shell featuring shell products, shell distributors, um, plus, you know, house brand, private label, things like that. But I fell in love with the shell brand and then and got to know the shell teams that we worked with very well and they were very supportive of me. I, uh, I started working with a mentor uh, who helped me on a regular basis train up on, on the more technical things. Um, I started my blog because I thought, well, I, I love what I see every day. There's such a variety. You're in the field. It's like a field trip every day. Uh, and you're seeing how all different things are made and how the world kind of comes to be. And so I started to oil adventures with Wendy <laughs> just to show off some cool stuff and started an Instagram from there. And uh, it kind of just took off. And I wasn't really expecting it to, to take off. But I think it's important in our industries, in the trades, especially that we we showcase what we do and why we love it and what's out there. And that's, you know, we'll touch on crew a little bit at some point here, but um, I there's so many great opportunities in all these different fields. So yeah, so high level overview. I specialize in lubricants for uh, heavy machinery is where I really found my wheelhouse uh, to be. I really enjoy the construction equipment. Um, and then I made it my goal to get hired on with Shell directly and uh, got hired with them last April. So uh, it's exciting nice. how I work for them. And um, yeah. Very cool. I You mentioned earlier, I, I think um, I think you were on a mining project and you said at that moment, you just kind of fell head over heels in love with uh, the space. Yes. What was it? What, what happened there? Um, it being in the quarries and, um, you know, we have one large underground operation just outside of Chicago and uh, getting to go into that and just the scale of everything and the size and power of the equipment. 
I, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I really did. Right. I, I can't even describe it beyond that. Just the, the big heavy machinery and, and seeing what it was doing and how powerful it was and the impact that it has on everything on our day-to-day life. Um, Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so do you, do you sell into um, just into construction or mining, agriculture? Is it everything? So prior, when I was working with the distributors, I featured, I would call on everything. Wherever I needed okay. to go, I would go. Uh, but I stuck, if I was out hunting, I would hunt for construction related machinery or, or heavy trucking and things like that. Uh, but I did work with automotive shops um, and I did work with some industrial like plastic injection molding, CNC machining, things like that. Um, so now that I'm with Shell, uh, Shell is, is so different than how the distributors are structured. We're very siloed into different industries. When I first came on board last April, I was responsible for our direct customers uh, in my area. And um, and what that means is we have accounts that are on a kind of a larger scale that our distributors are then required to deliver for uh, in order to maintain their distributorship. And then as a benefit of doing that for us, they get to go out and sell our products on their own paper as well. Uh, but their first priority is to take care of our direct customers. And so now that I'm on their side, I was managing those accounts uh, within the trucking space and a little bit of the off-highway uh, in Ch- Chicago Midwest area. And then we went through our reorg, a big company corporate yep. reorg, uh, not even eight months into my time there. And uh, so now my role has already shifted. I am responsible. So I'm on our CNH Case New Holland specific team. Uh, they're our largest OEM partner and my responsibility is to help their dealers grow lubricant sales at all of the dealerships throughout the Midwest. So now I am very, very construction and agriculture focused. Is there i I'm curious, is there a difference, uh, uh, working with different industries, um, construction, agriculture, mining. Um. Big time. We think, you know, uh, we always think that the construction industry is like the the slow moving, tough to change, slow to adapt, old school industry. But let me tell you what, agriculture is on a whole nother level. <laughs> is it? <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. Uh, but all good yeah. people. Everybody's so welcoming. Um, it, it's I, I just, I love meeting everyone that I get to meet. Um, all the different mom and pop construction companies, now all the different dealer network ownership and, and all the parts teams and things like that. And then the farmers and the farm operations. Um, it's a blast. So is it, when you say they're moving fast, is it uh, like, is the technology moving fast? Are they? Uh, oh, they're moving is, slow. Sort of, oh, they're moving slow. They're, they're oh, so, okay so uh resistant to change that's why i was saying oh, okay. the industry has typically been the one that's been you know old school a little behind this is how we've always done right. it kind of a approach but uh coming into the ag space was a, a <laughs> culture shock a little bit of of you know because we, really. we've got uh like as an example we've got like a qr code that will take um end users to a platform where they can they can put any machinery, any year, any make, any model, and it will, it'll tell them all the right products for all the different com- components and convert it over yeah. our product lines. And we're working like some of these farm shows and you give them this QR code and they'll pull out their flip phone and they'll be like, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> oh, really? Wow. <laughs> I use this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. um, yeah. That, that's so interesting because I mean, you know, the first, uh, First time I was in an autonomous vehicle or piece of equipment, right? It was a a, a combine. <laughs> right was it now. really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that was, you know, many years ago. Uh, so, it, you know, interesting. It sounds like pieces of technology are being adopted, but maybe not uh, everything, you know, down exactly. to uh, yep. flown. <laughs> yep. Uh, cool. Uh, so, um do you have uh, any advice? We, we want to talk about, you know, how contractors can uh, maintain their equipment and, you know, what role lubricants pay, uh, play in that and any sort of tips for uh, operator, operators. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in my experience, anytime I've worked with a fleet manager or a maintenance manager that's managing a large, medium, small fleet of mixed types of equipment, it's confusing. 
it's probably a bit overwhelming. Not only are they, you know, the lubrication and the maintenance is one aspect, but a lot of times they're wearing so many different hats because they're short staffed or they're just pulled in so many different directions. Um, I, I always tried to pride myself on, on being a resource for them, a partner for them, someone who can wear a handful of those hats. Um, we get to a point with some of my customers where all the, the texts are just texting me when they have lubricant questions and things like that. And I love that. Uh, that's some of my favorite things to do in the industry is make some of these complicated technical things more understandable and digestible for people. Um, so I have to hang up my shell hat because there are very specific um, politically correct things that I would have to say if I were speaking on behalf of shell, but I'm going to speak on behalf of Wendy, the oil lady at this point. Um, so my first recommendation for them would to be would be to find a partner. So whether that is your local lubricants distributor, your dealer, uh, whatever that might look like, uh, resources that are available to you in your area um, and lean on them, put them to work for you to help you um, look at your fleet as a whole and utilize some of the tools and technologies that are out there to first um, make sure you're using all of the right products in all the right places, because that's where I, I see people go wrong first is they they carry so many different OEMs. They've got so many different colors under their roof and their fleet. And then they think, well, I need this product here and I need this product here. And then you'll have so many different drums or pails or, or what have you floating around that now the, the mechanics, uh, there's a really high risk of misapplication of those products. Um, so if you can work to consolidate all of your products that you're carrying, because most of the time, you know, once things are out of warranty, if I'm being politically correct, um, you have, you can really hone down to just a few core products uh, that you need to keep on hand. And then, so they should be helping you with that. Let's make that, let's fix that first. Make sure we're doing everything correct first. Consolidate, simplify let's get your staff some training. So let's make sure that they understand why they're using these products. What are the kind of the, the basics of these products, like a little lubrication 101 style teaching yep. um, and, and then show them some of the tools and resources that are available to them. Um, I liked to make little like handbooks for my customers. I'd have a fleet chart in there. So it would have all of their units your make model, and then I'd break it down. So there would be an engine oil column, a transmission oil column, differentials, hydraulics, you know, gear oils, grease, yep. you name it, coolant. And then that way, anytime they have a unit coming in, they can just refer to this or, or on the you know digital copy and make sure that they're using those right products. And, um, and then go a step further. So if you want to make sure that your shop is in proper working order, um, making sure that you have all of your, your tanks, if you have bulk tanks, uh, that they're, they're clean, they're, they're sealed and contained from contaminants, um, they're, they're labeled properly. Color coding is a huge help, again, to, to the shops yeah. to simplify, make sure that everything that they're using is matching up. Um, so really, those would be my first two places you lean on your local professional for support, really put them to work for you. They have a ton of resources available to them, or they should, based on the brands that they represent. So as long as they're representing, um, you know, some of the, the major brands that are out there, Shell, Mobile, Chevron, you know, ConocoPhillips, et cetera, they're going to have a lot of great resources to offer any fleet or maintenance manager. That's really interesting. Um, and I love the color coding. I'm obsessed with color coding, by yes. the way. <laughs> yeah, I find it just be the easiest thing. Um, do, do you, um, so it's been a lot of years since I've owned equipment, um, probably close to 10. Uh, and I never ended up purchasing one of those auto grease systems. I always thought they looked really, really intriguing. Is that something you sell or recommend? Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So actually Shell, I believe, I don't think we go through the distributor network for that. I think you can actually purchase a system from Shell directly. Um, but a, but, the, but there's a lot of other aftermarket, a lot of the OEMs offer it as well. I think, I believe Caterpillar has their own auto greasing system that you can purchase. They, they have like an yeah. sampling system as well. So you can take oil uh, analysis pulls directly from the machine at a regular, on a regular basis without having to have human interaction, which right. is pretty cool. Um, so, uh, 
auto greasing, uh, especially, so if you have a large fleet, if you have, um, if you're short on techs, if, if you yep. think that, that piece of machinery is not going to get looked at and greased on a regular basis or on the, the timing that it should be, uh, I would definitely consider putting in an auto greasing system just for peace of mind to make sure that that, that machine is is getting the, the grease that it needs. Um, I used to <laughs> just hate when our team would uh, over grease and just make a mess out of the machine and it would be you know, everywhere and all the dirt would yeah. stick to it. Yeah. Do those systems uh, cut back on that? Um, they definitely they keep do. the machine cleaner? Yeah. They do. So they're only going to give the proper amount that's needed for that specific component um, so that it should keep it looking a lot better um, if it's all properly installed and, and dialed in and things like that, right? But uh, yes. Right. Cool. Um, so let's talk about walk-arounds. Why are they so uh, so important, equipment walk-arounds? And uh, yeah, what should be done in these walk-arounds? Oh, my God. Well, safety is probably your number one reason, right? Just to make sure that you're not jumping in and something's some disaster is waiting to happen because you failed to walk around and, and, and spot it. Um, so that's going to be your number one. Number two is making sure that like, yep, just what we said, the, the machine is greased. All the components are, are looking good. Um, everything is going to function properly. Um, I, I feel like it's so funny asking this question with us talking. It's like, it should be obvious, but people get so right. into their, their habit, their routine, their, they get used to it. And so they get comfortable and they forget to, to do the important things to stop, stop, look, let's take this in. Let's make sure everything is in proper working order. Um, yeah. And if you could, if you could spot just something small like that, that would potentially prevent a large failure. I mean, yeah. it's such a no brainer and, and uh, <laughs> large failure, expensive, costly downtime. That machine is not on the job. Now the job's delayed. I mean, you name it. So walk-arounds are so important. Um, do you think that uh, um, this type of maintenance is uh, more the responsibility of the operator or the fleet manager or shared? It's definitely shared, but it's going to, we want, uh, in my opinion, I would, I should say coming from leadership. So leadership has to have ownership of this needs to make sure that their guys are, are trained, understand their responsibilities every day, have the tools that they need when they're going out and getting started, um, maybe creating some sort of walk-around checklist that's protocol that they have to complete at the start of every job. Um, I know there's some good technologies out there nowadays, I believe, that that before you can even start the machine, you have to go through and check through a handful of things um, as, like a, as a fail-safe. So... I think it stems from leadership down, but of course, a, a good experienced operator um, is going to know what they should be doing prior to getting into that machine every day, taking care of it. And, yep. Yeah, agreed for sure. The um, so you work mostly with dealerships, uh, I think. Now I do. Uh, right. Before, um, before it was with end users. Now it's with dealerships. Yes. So I'm curious. Uh, it, the relationship between uh, contractors and rental equipment companies are are there any unique challenges for uh, contractors or equipment rental companies? Um, yeah. Yes, uh, a couple come to mind. So I'm finding that it's 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 such an extreme uh, size of the spectrum. People either trust their dealer for everything and go to them mm -hmm. for everything or they don't trust them at all. And they, they right. once the warranty is up, they are out of there. They're going to do all their own maintenance and everything. Um, so that's a, that's a definitely an interesting hurdle for some dealers to overcome, to try to continue to gain that trust of their customers, to offer value added services and things that you're not going to get when you're just going off on your own and, and trying to do it by yourself. Um, and the dealer at the end of the day, because it's because they have these partnerships with the large OEMs, because they have requirements. Anytime you work with a large brand like a, a case, a cat, um, or on the oil side, a shell, a Chevron, they have uh, 
really stringent quality standards. They have all kinds of checkpoints that you have to meet to either be a distributor or to be a dealer, right? Um, and trainings, all the things that you have to go through to make sure that you are representing and, and taking care of their, their brand, their products uh, the best. And so having those, those dealers have those resources, they have those big names and that, that big kind of money backing them. And, and that's one of the talking points that I use now in this role, because I'll be totally honest, it's, it's been really interesting going from spending the first half, the first large portion of my career telling everybody, forget the dealer, do your own services, buy all your product from me, I'll help you. And now having to be like, go to the dealer. <laughs> Don't do anything on your own. You know, I had to completely change my, uh, my pitch there, but um, I do see the benefit in that, you know, if, if heaven forbid something massive or, or costly happened to a piece of machinery that, that my dealers at one of their end users, you have all of the resources that the dealership has to help diagnose or solve that problem. If they can't, for whatever reason, they have all of the resources of the OEM, so whether that's case or cat, et cetera. And then if beyond that, you have all of the resources of the, like in our, in our case, the oil major who supports that brand of products. So we don't, the, the products that in my instance that are for um, case, case New Holland, it's case's product, it's their recipe. Um, we just have the cooks in the kitchen. So we just cook it up for them. Um, but because it, we touch it at Shell, now you have all of our resources behind that product. And so you have such a great safety net and access to so many different things when you're, when you're using a quality product and working with a dealer. Um, so that would be, so that's your, your, my first point. The second point at a rental company, like what, what you guys deal with on a regular basis is you are um, loaning that equipment out to, to anyone and everyone, whether they have experience or not, whether they know what they're doing or not. And those machines are probably put through much harder tests and uh, circumstances out in the field than a machine that is owned by a, you know, a, a company that, that actually has ownership over that, that has that skin in the game to make sure that that machine is properly maintained and cared for. So I feel like your equipment is coming back a lot more beat up. You're having to figure out how to prevent that from happening without being able to train that person or, or have any sort of, you know, obviously they're signing off, they're signing away their life maybe when they're, when they're renting it, but still who's going to, what, what Joe Schmo is going to get thrown in the seat of that excavator and not care that he's greasing it or maintaining it or that he's running it over on hours before, you know, when it's due for service. So that's a definitely a unique challenge to equipment rental companies. Yeah, it seems like the contractors are, um, they have a, a different reason to be incentivized for maintaining the equipment when it's a rental, right? It's probably maintaining it for safety rather than, you know, for longevity. Um, do you, I'm curious and, and really have no idea on this answer. It, do you sell the same quality of lubricants into rental houses as you would to the contractor? Are they buying the exact same uh, material or uh, do you recommend something different uh, when they may go longer periods of time without uh, the same amount of maintenance? Um, well, it's it's really up to what the company wants to do, what motivates them, right? Uh, I would be doing my best to try to educate them on the benefits of having a higher quality product. And while, because while you may be paying more upfront for that product, yep. to have that peace of mind, that little bit of extra insurance that that machine is going to hold up under worse circumstances if it's getting pushed past its drain interval be, heaven forbid that happens but it happens a lot um you know that that product is going to hold up longer and, and function better and so really trying to point them towards those better products is, is very important but you can't always convince them and so i do see a lot of rental outfits that end up just using like a private label house brand product especially in our industry because like i get it you blow a hose at any given time, it happens all the time and you lose all that product and how devastating it would be if that product was a, 
bit of a pricey product to just lose it out on the ground like that. So I, I do understand the, the thought process that goes behind that, but proper maintenance is so important and, and making sure that you have a product that's not going to oxidize uh, as quickly as a house brand product will um, is so important just, just to keep that machine running. This podcast is sponsored by Dozer, an online marketplace for heavy equipment rentals across North America. Partnering with thousands of rental houses, Dozer provides contractors with access to local suppliers, transparent pricing, mobile ordering, and an industry-leading payment option of 0% interest for 60 days. Go to dozer.com to find your next heavy equipment rental. That's D-O-Z-R dot com. What, uh, let's talk about the... Um the costs a little bit uh, of downtime. Um, what, what are, you know, what impact does uh, lubrication have on costs of downtime? That's huge, a huge impact. Uh, if that machine has a major failure, that's a huge cost in itself. Now, also in today's day and age, when parts and supply is short on pretty much everything still at this point, how long are you going to wait for that part to come in, whatever it may be? How long are you going to wait because we are short-staffed, because we have a workforce issue, to get time in a bay for that machine to get worked on if the parts are coming in? Um, and now what's it doing to that job site? How, how delayed is that job? Uh, can you find a piece of equipment that you can rent in the meantime to, to fill in for the one that that is out? Uh, because just like what we went through the last few years, you couldn't find machines for a long time. I'm sure you right. guys could, couldn't keep them on your lot, you know? Um, yeah. So there's so many factors that go into that, that to, to think about using something that's a buck or two less per gallon or liter to save that little, to penny pinch like that, and then have that, all of that costliness behind that, that risk is, um, but so many people do it. They they just can't get over that initial price point. And uh, so it really is up yeah. to us to educate them and to make them aware of, of why these products are a little bit more per gallon, the, what's going into them, what other services come with the products, you know, depending on the brand you use. And then, yeah, just to, to prevent that downtime. So... Makes sense. I, um, with uh, new emission standards uh, changing, uh, how does that affect the oil uh, and lube uh, industry? It requires the products to, to become more and more quality, I guess is the best way to describe it, because now as the machines are changing, you have, you have smaller reservoirs, tighter clearances, the, the fluids get hotter. Um, you have less room for error in there. And so now the products have to withstand all of that. Uh, so the technology has to just become better and better, which of course drives the price up of, of the product. Um, so that's definitely going to, people will feel that as, as the new products come out. Um, a lot of OEMs know that these emissions uh, standards are coming down the road. And so they'll try to stay ahead of them as much as they can. And they'll start making changes to things far out from when everything is going to go into effect. Um, and it just helps people kind of get into the right habits before they are forced to get into the right habits. Um, but it, but it does, it makes everything more difficult. Um, so it, it requires a lot more, uh, technology, a lot better technology and a lot uh, higher quality of product. Um, on that, so you use an example of like the temperature uh, increasing. How is it? Is it drastically increasing, and how quickly is that happening? Is it are things moving really fast? Like in the last three years, things have completely changed, uh, and they're up ten degrees. Uh, or is it over the past twenty five years, things have went up one degree, but it's still super meaningful? Uh, I'm not that well-versed into the actual numbers of, of how sure. you know, the statistics and things like that. But I will say just in my 10 year career at this point, I have seen a significant change in the machinery that's coming out. 
uh, and the complexity of it and the, the, like the emission systems and things that are in there. And then the problems that those systems cause the machines, right? Because there's always hiccups and things like that along the way. Um, but I would say it's, it's happening rapidly in like a five to 10 year swing. Um, and that's roughly about how long between each uh, inter emissions interval, right? So we had the last for engine oil specifically, it was the, um, like the, 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 the diesel engine oils moved from CJ4 to CK4 with that new standard. And we're just coming into, and that was, I want to say that was like 2017 that that happened. And we're coming into the next one here in the next year, I want to say, sometime next year, 2024. I'll, I'll verify for you, but um, it's coming up. And so you're going to see the next round of, of standards come out. And so those, those numbers on the product will change to whatever they're going to release it to next. Um, uh, so that's your time frame, you know, 2017 to 20, roughly, we'll say 2025, right in that that time slot. It's, it's happening pretty quickly and the OEMs have to have to plan for that and they have to keep up with that. And so the machines have to change and be ready for that next uh, set of standards that are, that's coming out. Are there any new trends in lubricants and oils that you're watching out for? Yeah, a lot of um, they're moving away from some of the typical additive chemistry that you would find in, in the products that have historically been there. So like zinc and phosphorus are your two main elements that are usually making up your anti-wear package. Um, a lot of companies are starting to move away from zinc. Um, the, the talking point that has typically been fed to us is that zinc can be a little bit more corrosive and harsh on the lighter metals that are coming out in a lot of these newer machines. Um, there's also there's also rumors and, and talk, but I don't know how much there is that actually verify this. Uh, but but zinc is one of the less environmentally friendly additives in these products, and so there, that can be a motivating factor as to why you're seeing it uh, removed and replaced. Um, and so it's it's not totally it, but it's a slow. There's a slow shift to changing the additive chemistry removing and replacing with new technologies, also getting away from your typical base oils. So your, your crude oil base oil and moving to synthetics, um, which are completely man-made. They're, they don't, they're not derived from those, those crude products at all uh, because the machines require such a quality of product. The best way it was ever described to me to think about the difference between a conventional product and a synthetic product is if you have, the synthetic product is going to look like putting a whole bunch of marbles together. So those molecules are perfectly identical, smooth, round. They can roll past each other and function well, and that prevents them from uh, from oxidating, from breaking apart faster. Whereas your conventional product, it's like throwing a whole bunch of jumbled up different sized pieces with jagged edges and parts they work together fine, but they get caught, you know, caught up on things quickly, and so they they break apart and and oxidize much more quickly than a synthetic product. Um, so you're seeing a big shift over to synthetics, and then you're also seeing um, a decrease in viscosity grades. So products are going down to you know zero weight, zero zero five, uh, zero thirty, uh, five forty, you know five thirty, things like that, where we still have people in our industry, these, you know, the people who have been here for a while, who are used to seeing like straight grade 30 weight, heavy, heavy products, not multi-grade. So the reason for a product having the two numbers on either end of the W, the W stands for winter. So your first number is how that product is going to function in cold weather applications. So you want it, you want it to have, uh, to be more fluid. Uh, so it can it can move more quickly in those cold temperatures because things get sluggish when it's cold. The quicker it can get up into those components to lubricate them, especially on a cold start, the more protection you have. So you want that product to function more fluid in the colder weather. And then on the other side of the W is your warm weather application. As things heat up, they tend to thin out. And so you want that product to be able to maintain a, a bit of a thicker, 
consistency to protect those components. So those multi-grade products can withstand a very large shift in temperature. They will function, you know, in the case of a 5W40, like a five weight oil, all the way up to a 40 weight oil in, in that temperature swing. Um, without shearing off, they'll maintain that viscosity. Uh, straight grade products will not. So your straight grade product is just going to be consistent 30 weight all the time, which is not going to move at all in the winter <laughs> and not going to be able to get up and, and lubricate those components. So you're going to have a lot of damage occurring on, on a cold start, you know, or on any startup for that matter. So, um, so yes, so you're seeing a shift to, to lighter products as well, because like I said before, those, those clearances, those tolerances in the machines are getting smaller and smaller. So you need a, and you need a lighter product. There's also a factor of the, the literal weight of the product causes a bit of, uh, if it's heavier, it's not as easy to move. So it requires more effort by the machine to get flow of that product which is therefore less efficient and not as um, environmentally friendly, right? Not as, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Like, it, it really applies more to like over the road trucking. Uh, fuel economy is impacted uh, with, a, with a lighter weight oil. Um, right. So those are kind of the main things that you're, you're seeing. You're seeing a different changes in additive chemistry. You're seeing uh, things really shift to synthetics. And then you're seeing uh, changes in the viscosities of the products. That's super interesting. Awesome to hear you uh, explain that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, I'm so it's been again. It's been a long time since I had my own equipment, but I, I seem to remember there was a project where we were working underwater. Um, we were building a bridge, uh, and I think there was some kind of. Uh, um, environmentally friendly hydraulic oil uh, for the to go on the excavator in case uh, a hose broke. Is that a thing? Um, and if so, can you tell us about that a little? Yes, um, I'll have to. I'm gonna have to dig into my memory banks for this because it's been a while since I've sold any sort of uh, eco sure. product. But it really, again, it comes down to the base oil, what it's made out of. Um, and so it's not going to be typically made from your crude based products. It's going to come down to the additive chemistry that's in there. So the additives have to be able to uh, be kind of more water soluble and um, and dissolve yeah. without causing harm to marine life and things like that. Um, so you'll see like any any uh, shipping application, large scale shipping application, they have to use very specific products uh, to be EPA compliant. Um, same thing, like you said, when you have jobs over water, um, I, I worked with um, a large, like a compressed gas company, uh, one of the larger things in the U.S. For, I worked with their truck fleet and even there for safety reasons as well, their, their truck fleet required really specific, um, both environmentally friendly and like a fire resistant fluids uh, because to mitigate risk of anything happening um, with the product, with uh, whatever disaster could occur as you're hauling compressed gas down the highway, right? Um, so, yes, they, they do exist. They are real. A lot of the technology is proprietary, so you won't, you won't get like a true breakdown of exactly what the products consist of uh, because they, we all compete with each other, right? And we want to have the best one to offer, but um, you'll see, I think you'll start to see more of a trend towards back towards like natural based products. I was reading an article recently about different uh, like vegetable oils and things like that being used as base oils to, to be more environmentally friendly and things like that. And the, the technologies that are improving there as well. So yes, they do exist and they will, they will make you compliant for your job. Cool. A couple more questions. The uh, with electric vehicles and electric equipment, are, is are we using all the same oils and lubricants, or are there any any changes there? There's definitely changes. Um, obviously, you don't need any engine oil in uh, in an EV, um, but it's basically like one big transmission system almost. So you have you have a lot of gears in there, gear systems, and you have a lot of torque 
an incredible amount of power. Uh, so you have to lubricate that properly. So initially, as this trend came out, you were seeing mostly your typical ATF products being used in those applications. Um, there's a lot more research and development going into all of that because of the challenges that these these vehicles present. Um, the Like I was saying, that level of torque is um, something that isn't commonplace in our in our typical gasoline diesel engines um, right. and applications and so uh, trying to come up with products that can withstand that there's also the issue of with with the batteries that there is a uh, a need for a higher quality coolants but not just cooling it also keeping it at temperature because if it gets too cold uh, it doesn't function properly as well right being able to find that sweet spot. And then um, additionally, uh, non-conductive products. So there, there's a, a little bit of um, controversy around like a, a non-conductive products today because technically they're not, there's not enough ability for them to conduct in our current machines to really warrant any concern. Um, but now in these EV systems, there is, right? There is a, there's, there's much right. more electricity running through that. There's much more opportunity for them to be conductive. And so you're, have, you're seeing products coming out that mitigate that risk as well. Wow, that's really interesting. That, that, um, that's probably uh, something moving at a really fast pace, um, yes. you know, for the companies yeah. to keep up with. Yeah. Very much so. And there we haven't even received that much information yet, to be honest. I I probably feel like I'm I'm doing it a disservice the way I'm explaining <laughs> it. I've sat in on a few trainings here and there just because it is such a, a trending topic and it's nice to go learn for myself what's happening in that space, but I sure. don't deal with it on a regular basis by any means yet at this point in, in our industries. Um but it, it yes, that's how I've understood it. So I hope I did a Okay. Okay, yeah, John. No, it's helpful. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot more than I know. That's that's for sure. That's uh, it's helpful. Um, so maybe shifting gears a little bit here. Um, so uh, I've also got to note that um, you're now the president of Crew Collaborative, a great yes. nonprofit doing uh, some amazing work. Right. <laughs> Can you tell us some more about uh, what you're doing there? Absolutely. So crew, you know, if I if I go back to my kind of story of how I came into the industry, when I started to market myself on Instagram, uh, this was right prior to the 2020 Con Expo, uh, right? His COVID and everything was happening, but there was uh, a handful of us women in the in the construction related industry, right? Uh, construction trades that kind of came together. We formed a little group chat. We were talking, getting, getting to know each other, getting excited for Con Expo. And then we, after Con Expo, we decided as we were chatting that, you know, we all see this issue in all the different facets of our industry with workforce. You know, everybody is so short on people. We, we're struggling to attract talent. Um, we all have such passion for our industry. And, and how, so how can we go out and help be a solution to this problem? So we decided in July of 2020 to get together in person and start to come up with some ideas on how we could, we could make some sort of difference in this and, you know, not tackle it per se, cause it's such a, it's such a widespread issue, but, um, Crew was born uh, initially as a woman's initiative. It was going to be a construction retreat empowering women. But we decided immediately that if we were just going to focus on women, we were going to leave out half of the potential workforce population that, that we need to be marketing to. So when we did officially incorporate as a nonprofit, we, uh, we are a split board between men and women. And um, we now have three pillars of programming that are running. First, we first off, we started with social media exposure because that's where the kids are. Um, we figured youth, are, the next generation was going to be our main focus uh, on potential candidates for uh, employees. Uh, but we also support transitioning veterans and then anyone who is not happy in their current industry, medical, corporate world, whatever that is, that wants to come into our industry. Uh, but but kids, the next generation is our main focus, and they're on social media. So we're going to try to get in front of them. We started our social pages to to showcase the things that we're doing and loving in our respective careers in the field out there. 
as a way to expose the industry a bit. Um, and then once that was rolling, we we created our first pillar of programming, which is Classroom Talks, which is sponsored by Toro. And what that is is um, a virtual a virtual presentation, basically, to middle school students, high school students, uh, boys and girls clubs, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, things like that, where we get about an hour of time uh, from the teacher. And we have a panel of five to ten individuals, professionals working their respective trade or role within the construction industry. And um, they talk for five to ten minutes each about what they do how they got into it. So what kind of training that took, if it took a technical school, if it took a a apprenticeship, or if they were able to just jump into it, um, why they love it, and a rough earning potential. Uh, So this is our way of directly exposing the kids to all of the different careers that are out there. And it's not just the people doing the laboring either, right? Because I am not a tradesperson. I'm I'm not out there doing the laboring or anything like that, but I am a supporting role to to the construction industry and the trades. And there's a ton of those as well. You know, you have sales staff and marketing staff and product support staff and things like that, where they're not actually doing, you know, a laborious task, but they're still vital to the industry. And so same thing with leadership, you know, project managers, estimators, uh, company owners and things getting to share their experience of how they came to be in their position. And so we're getting huge feedback from that in that the students are saying, you know, I had no idea these jobs existed. These people look happy and fulfilled, and I had no idea you could make that kind of money. Um, so now, so we're, wow. we're exposing them, um, and now we've created, we're coming out, we, we have a second pillar of programming, which is our ambassador program. Caterpillar sponsors that, and that's, again, taking uh, professionals like you and I who are out there in our roles, loving it, giving them a, a four-week polishing, so to speak, so uh, a little bit of a how to public speak how to represent our industry professionally, how to talk mm-hmm. about crew, and then how to look for resources uh, in your kind of local area. So if we have students reaching out or people that are interested in getting into the industry, you're able to kind of help them because it looks different. If you want to be an operator in um, you know, the middle of Kansas here, that sure. path is going to be very different than where I'm at, you know, Chicagoland, where you're pretty much your only option is the union. Um, so if our local ambassadors were kind of the way that we were going to, we're going to help, uh, but we've, we're now developing, and I'm sorry, I'm long winded here, but we're now developing okay. a third pillar of programming with the support of case construction. And that is called framework. And that is going to be um, the first ever structured program for high school guidance counselors. So as we have students, you know, that are getting there, we're exposing them with the classroom talk. They, they're like, okay, I think I want to be an HVAC technician, a mechanic, a plumber, whatever, whatever that looks like. And they approach their guidance counselor. There is not any uh, current path or resource that exists for them. They're kind of left to figure it out on their own. Whereas if they were to have an interest in a four-year university path, there is a, a very clear-cut path with all kinds of resources that are poured into them. Um, yes. so we were creating that clear-cut path with all of the resources. So we're basically building out a database of everything that exists across the country as far as trade schools, technical programs, apprenticeships, mentorships, internships, and drilling that down to local levels. So when someone reaches out you know, in California, in Los Angeles, and they want to be a plumber, we're going to pair them with a vetted uh, mentor in that area, uh, in that industry that can now handhold them through that process and make sure that they are having the best chance at success um, instead of just letting them try to figure it out on their own. And uh, we're also going to have a little bit of like a kind of aptitude testing. So if students aren't sure, they, they know they don't want to go maybe the four-year university route or the corporate world route, but they don't know exactly what they want to do, we'll be able to kind of find a few different options that might work for them and then pair them with job shadow opportunities so that they can see if something clicks. Um, So we're we're really trying to solve this issue now from end to end, getting them exposed and then helping them directly into the field. 
That's super cool. It sounds like you guys are doing some great work and much needed work. Um, any plans to expand it into Canada? Yes. Actually, after this podcast today, we have a call with a group of interested individuals uh, about uh, forming the first Canadian chapter. Um, wow. So it's, it's not really officially on our to-do list until 2024, but we're going to start having those initial conversations now. Um, and then once we're finished with our program build out here, we hope to copy and paste it up in Canada and then elsewhere in the future. So yes, wow. stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll keep our eyes open. That's awesome. Um, so Wendy, this has been awesome. Um, one more question for you. Uh, we always ask everyone, um, do you have a, a favorite piece of equipment? I always liked the big haul trucks, you know, the rock trucks and oh, things yeah? like that. Uh -huh. I, I really like those. I also love a good excavator. Um, and I'll, I'll take any brand. I'm not, I, for, for my job purposes, I love case equipment, but <laughs> I like all equipment. Um, and then I also have always been drawn to like rail. So trains, I like the large shipping operations as well. Like I think I could have fun specializing in various different parts of the industry over my career. So yeah, a lot of great stuff out there. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been really great. Um, how, how can our listeners uh, get in touch with uh, yourself and as, also with uh, crew? Yes. So I am mainly on Instagram at the dot oil dot lady. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me there by searching that or, or Wendy, uh, Wendy Hacken. Um, and I don't do much with Facebook anymore at this point. Facebook's kind of on the way out, I think a little bit, but, uh, and then I have right. a website, the dash oil dash lady.com that I try to put all of the like basic tools to help people. Um, that I think will like fleet managers, maintenance managers, things like that, like viscosity charts, grease compatibility charts, helpful articles, information on new specs coming out on products. Those are on there. Um, and the, and YouTube as well. So, which is very, very crude and unprofessional because I don't have a marketing team, but we get it out there as long as the information's out there and helpful. That's all that counts. Uh, and then crew, same thing. So it's at the dot crew dot club. And then our website is uh, thecrewcollab.org. Um, and we are always looking for support. So if you have any interest, if you hear this, and if you have, if you love what you do and you want to help, we always need Classroom Talks volunteers. And then as we build out our framework program, we are going to need all of the resources. So if your company has mentorships, internships, apprenticeships, or open positions where you want to take people directly from high school, uh, please sign up with us so that we can add you to that database and lean on you once we launch, um, launch the whole program. That's awesome. Thanks again, uh, Wendy. Thanks so much. It's been really great getting to know you and uh, I'm sure many of you will reach out. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Wendy about oil and lubrication in the construction industry. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow us on social media or watch all of our episodes on YouTube. And make sure to subscribe. All links to Wendy's channels are provided in the description of this episode. Thanks again for tuning in, and we look forward to having you back.